Let's go ahead and dive in this morning and get started once again in Matthew chapter 5. This morning continuing in verses 10 and now all the way through 12. Blessed the particularly persecuted. And this is the third installment and I think probably the next to last installment thereof. As we begin to consider the Sermon on the Mount and we are indeed just beginning, we see Christ come preaching the radical message of the gospel of the kingdom. The good news of the kingdom that the king reigns and that his reign is being manifest even in his people. The blessings of the king, happiness due to favorable circumstance exist both in the now and in the not yet. The blessings of the king exist now in those who are poor of spirits, those who are bankrupt apart from the riches of the Holy Spirit, for theirs is, not will be, but is the kingdom of heaven. They are the subjects of the king, and we're that right now. The nature of the new creation in them, the character of Christ being formed in us, is that it is His Spirit that is in us. It is His peace. It is His meekness. Great power under precise control. Therefore, as we have seen, the Sermon on the Mount is not a formula on how to lead a blessed life, but is instead the description of the life of those who are blessed. For out of Christ in us flows all the blessings that are not yet. Mercy inheritance, satisfaction, even to be called before the throne, the very children of God. Now such a radical kingdom in the midst of this world will not draw favor from the denizens thereof. Instead, as Christ has told us, it will bring persecution. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 10 and 11, where we've been over the last several weeks, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. The persecution that Christ is talking about is being blessed for those to whom the kingdom of heaven belong now is not just any persecution. Instead, it is specifically a persecution for righteousness' sake. It's a persecution for Christ's sake. When His people, fulfilling the righteous standard, not of Christ, but the righteous standard that is Jesus Christ, will be persecuted because of Christ in them. Christ in you. And so the question, of course, has to be at some point, how do we respond? And the answer is not like the world. Not with fear and repaying reviling for reviling or evil for evil, but instead honoring Christ as Lord to fulfill the way He will later teach us to pray here in the Sermon on the Mount. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, what we're saying is this, the response of the saints looks like Christians being honestly good with the revealed will of God, even when it brings great difficulty upon them. To rejoice and to be glad when being reviled and persecuted requires at least two things. It requires not only an understanding of the sovereignty of God, but more than that, an embracing of the goodness of God 
in His sovereignty when it brings about difficult, even persecuted circumstances. And I would have you note this morning that the persecution that Christ is speaking of is going to be rough. It's going to be rough. And I say going to be because this is one of those things that we may be more thankful of at this point is not yet. Because in this country, we by and large do not understand what it means to be persecuted for our faith. At least not yet. It's going to be rough. And I'm not talking about being ridiculed in class, being talked about behind your back by your co-workers, or passed over for promotion because of your faith. I'm talking actually rough. For when the righteous desires of Christ are put on display, when He is being formed in His people, it exposes an evil desire in those of the world that must either be abandoned unto repentance or justified unto lawlessness. When you realize that, I would have you note that the very testimony, Christians, you need to get this in your head, the very testimony of Christ that is necessary for evangelism, that shows a person their enslavement to their own self and to sin, and gives them the opportunity to then either abandon that and run to Christ in repentance, or reject it and justify themselves in lawlessness. The very testimony of Christ that is necessary for evangelism is the glory of God that results in salvation if it is embraced, and it is the very thing that brings persecution if it is rejected. In other words, they are mutually, mutually inclusive. You can't have one without the other. You cannot have salvation through evangelism without the resulting persecution that comes from the same testimony. Which is why in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 12, verse 12a, Paul says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Because there is no godly life in Christ without the testimony of Christ. And the testimony of Christ brings both rejoicing at salvation and it brings pain with persecution. Now when this option is put before men, many will choose to justify themselves and therefore put God and Christ in us in the wrong. This is exactly the question that you see posed to Job when Job is kind of sitting on the bubble in Job chapter 40. If you're familiar with the book of Job, the Lord puts Job through some extremely trying circumstances and some very real persecution that is coming not at the hands of men, but at the hand of Satan himself. And when Job is struggling with the goodness of God in the midst of his sovereignty and his own righteousness or lack thereof, the Lord asked him this in chapter 40, verse 8, Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you might be right? Friends, what we saw last week out of Jesus speaking to the Pharisees about not being able to serve God in money, one thing is clear. When the heart of Jesus Christ exposes the evil heart of fallen men, they have a choice that is put before them. Who's going to be wrong? You or God? 
you will abandon yourself and repent and run to Him, He will save you. If you harden yourself, try to justify yourself. Friends, He's not going to move. You try to justify yourself. The only way for you to say you're right is to say He's wrong. You know, they normally save the invitation for the end of the sermon. I mean, I would tell you to be saved right now. Be saved right now. When on the bubble, God tells Job this, what's it going to be, buddy? You're going to put me in the wrong to make yourself right? Or are you going to confess my holiness and my righteousness? <coughs> declare your error and be saved. Job would not declare God to be wrong. Praise the Lord. But many will. Many will. And it never begins with a persecution unto violence. According to what we saw last week, it begins with reviling and slander. For contrary to popular belief, speech is not, has never been, and that will never constitute violence. Violence is violence. Speech is speech. One of them will make you upset. The other one will leave you bleeding in the ER. Or in a coffin. Speech is not violence. And yet, violent persecution always begins there. That is where it always has its roots. Because if you want to be able to be justified in treating people as evil, you must first present them in a convincing way as being worthy of that treatment. But it doesn't end there. Today, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 12, rejoice and be glad. And that just seems out of place almost, doesn't it? We'll get there. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So this persecution, that doesn't just come for any reason, but because of righteousness' sake, because of Christ's sake, that is being formed in us, that is the, the, the same thing that is drawing men to God is also repelling men from God. Because this persecution comes and it starts with reviling and it starts with slander and it ends in violence. He says, know this, that this is the same way that they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is not the first instance of persecution in this man. But so too it was with the prophets. Now Scripture testifies to this all over. Jesus testifies it to it in Matthew chapter 23. When in verse 37, he laments and says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Before, reviling and false speech result in the inevitable conclusion of violent persecution in the moments before that occurs, Stephen is speaking and he testifies to it in Acts chapter 7 when he says in verse 51 through 53, You stiff-necked people, 
uncircumcised and hard in ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, and who you received as the law, you who received the law as delivered by angels, and yet did not keep it. It's not just the New Testament that speaks to these things. The Old Testament spoke to them even as they were unfolding. For Nehemiah records Esther's test, Ezra's testimony in chapter 9, verse 26, when he says, speaking of the people of Israel, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemy. They killed the very people that the Lord Himself sent to help them and not to hurt them. When you read those kind of all-encompassing statements, they give you a little bit of clinical separation, if you will. Um, particular denial. <clears throat> And I don't mean denial of the event, but it keeps it from being particularly personal to you. They killed prophets. Kind of this big ball of wax, all-encompassing statement. But in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 11, in verses 32-38, the author of Hebrews paints a bit more intimate picture. Now, I'll have you noticed that many of these are prophets that are listed in chapter 11, but many are not. Because so too, as it was with the prophets, will it be with you. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32, the author of Hebrews says, What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell you of Gideon and Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, and stopped the mouth of lions, who quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, and became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Man, you want to get you some 12, 13, 14, 15-year-old 15 15 boys and get them pumped up about service to the kingdom, those kind of statements right there will do the job. And they should. But we would be remiss to leave it there. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. That's what it looked like. And so as it is with the prophets, so will it be with you, Jesus said. 
so will it be for men listed here and women listed here that were prophets. But they suffered the same fate. And I think you have to ask the question, why? Why is it, Lord, that I'm not a prophet? That you're not a prophet? You're like, man, I swing a hammer for a living. I'm not a prophet. Why am I going to suffer like a prophet? Why is my child who's not a prophet possibly going to suffer persecution in the same manner that they persecuted the prophets, which was all this terrible stuff about being tortured and refusing to be released and imprisonment and stoning and being sawed into? Why is that the case? And we've already actually answered the question and we just haven't connected the dots yet. And it's because as it goes with the Son is the way it's going to go with the servants of the King. The servants in whom the Son is being formed. So, if you look at Matthew chapter 21. In Matthew chapter 21, in verses 33 through 46, Jesus tells this parable. And here it is. In verse 33, Jesus says, Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants. And he went into another country. So, very nice vineyard. At least that's the way I would see it in my mind. I think there's probably scriptural evidence to say that you ought to see it that way. Very nice vineyard. And he leases it out to these tenants. These are people that are not directly connected to him, but now have temporary possession over his property. And when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants. Now these are different than tenants. They are directly loyal in connection to the master. He sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. And again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. And finally, he sent his sons to them, saying, they will respect my son. I mean, surely, if the master's son comes, they'll respect him. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, now, hook on to their motivation, it's going to be important here in a little while. They said to themselves, this is the heir. He's different than the servant boys that he sent before. This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. They killed the first ones that came because they came to remind them that the things they had were not properly theirs but actually belonged to the master. They killed the son out of rebellion and sedition that having killed him that they may take what is his own and have it become theirs and thereby no longer have to hear these servants coming in and telling them it's not. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what do you what will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, 
Have you never read the Scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in your eyes. And therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that He was speaking about them. This is what Christ does. When the heart of Christ, when the, when the light of Christ is shining to the darkness of the world, this is where we're at in John chapter 3, 16 through 22 last week. When you shine it in there, there's two things that happen. There's works that are being carried out in individuals by God, and they love the light and come to the light. And there's men that are carrying out their own works and their own selves, justifying themselves that they can put God in the wrong, and they scurry like rats from the maglot. Because they hate the light. They perceived He was talking about them. Here's the heart of Christ, the righteousness of Christ on display. What are you going to do? Are you going to repent and be saved? Are you going to justify yourself and enter into reviling and slander that is designed to set the table for violent persecution? And for these men, the answer was the opposite of that of Job. It's exactly what they did. They perceived that He was speaking about them and although they were seeking to arrest Him, they feared the crowds because they held Him to be, guess what, a prophet. So Jesus is teaching. He says in the Sermon on the Mount, so as they persecuted the prophets, so they will with you. Why? We find out later in Matthew chapter 21, because if you belong to the Son and are being transformed into His image, then the hatred that they have for the Son will become the hatred they have for you. Like the Son, so the servants. It was true for His apostles. We could go through all of them this morning. I won't. We'll pick a couple. Andrew, the brother of Peter, would be crucified in, in, in perhaps the second most awful way after a war. They didn't crucify Andrew in the traditional way. They used an X-shaped cross that's specifically designed to allow you to get more air so you last longer. And they didn't nail him to it so the shock would kill you. They tied him to it. He lasted for days. Nathaniel was skinned alive and then crucified what was left of him with his head downward in Turkey. John Mark was dragged to death. Philip would be tortured and paled by iron hooks through his ankles and hung upside down until he died. They said he preached to his very last breath. 54 AD in Egypt. James the lesser, that is to say not the half-brother of Christ and not the son of Zebedee, was thrown from the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem and then stoned and when he still wouldn't die at 90 years old, they finally beat his brains out with a club. He was a tough old dude, man. Matthew, the very author of this gospel, I guess we should probably say describe, was staked and then speared to the ground for questioning the morals of an African king. This, but as you can already tell from what we read in Hebrews, this persecution of the prophets, it doesn't just stay with the prophets, it spreads. Neither would it remain solely with the apostles. This persecution is a respecter 
of neither old nor young, of, 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 of time nor place, and neither of Jew or Gentile. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 16, Paul writes to the church there, and it's particularly poignant that he's writing to the Thessalonians because of what he's going to say to them later. But for now, he writes to the church there in 2 Thessalonians, or 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verses 13 through 16, and he says this, We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God. It is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. You suffered at the hands of other Thessalonians and those in Judea suffered at the hands of the Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind. Man, how did they oppose all mankind? Paul tells us, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. Not only they were not content to simply persecute us, but also intended us to not be able to convey the gospel to you. Because when the gospel is conveyed to you, in order that you have the opportunity to see who Christ is and repent, every time they hear us doing that, all they hear is the need to justify themselves. So as always, to fill up the measure of their sins, but God's wrath has come upon them at last. And this persecution, it is the persecution of the prophets. But it's not confined to prophets. It is the persecution of the apostles, but it's not confined to apostles. It's the persecution of those who some are, are Jews, but it's not confined to the Jews. It's the persecution of those who are Gentile, but it is not confined to the Gentile. It is the persecution of the first century, but it is not confined to the first century. And the reason why is because the persecution circles around a singularity. A singularity of commonality that they all possess. Whether you're Deborah or Barak, whether you're David or the prophet Samuel, whether you're an apostle Or, for if, or if you're one of the Christians that have died in the Sudan this week, it's all about a singular commonality. And the easiest place to see it is out of the prophets because it's typically the place we would expect to see it less. And that's in Peter's first letter in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10-11. We actually touched on this last week on Sunday night. Uh, and in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, Speaking about the salvation that is coming through the gospel of Jesus Christ, Peter writes and says this, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. How, what did they search and inquire for? 
inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and his subsequent glories. When the prophets wrote, the manner in which they wrote was because of the Spirit of Christ, not on them, but in them. Have you ever heard that old quote-unquote truism that says, well, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon someone and they put it on like a cloak. But in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit comes and resides permanently in our hearts. Okay, that is not a truism. It is a falseism. Scripture said that the manner in which the prophets wrote was by the Spirit that was in them. That's the commonality. That's why they persecuted David. Endeavor. That's why they persecuted Peter and Matthew. It was all because of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 21. It's because they persecute the Son unto a very specific end. To be able to obtain the inheritance that is supposed to belong to Him. Guys, let me tell you something. The reason for persecution is not differences in theology. If all you had was differences in theology, you'd have no persecution. It's not politics. Not the persecution we're talking about. Not the persecution that is for righteousness' sake. It's not politics. It's not culture. It's not worldview. Oh, I'm tired of that one. It's not even religion. The reason for persecution, what you see going on in places like the Sudan is not the difference between the conceptualized religion of Islam versus Christianity. That is not why. It's not politics, it's not culture, it's not worldview, it's not religion, and it's certainly not you. And we're not going to get to this till next week, but let me just say, when it comes, don't be sitting around going, poor little me, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Christ and Christ in you. They hate the Son because they think if they can be His undoing, they can take His inheritance. And when He is being formed in you, I mean, this is Romans chapter 8 stuff, man. Why did He, why did he foreknow them? Why did He predestine them? In order for them to be conformed to the image of His Son. When they see Him in you, they hate that image nearly as much as they hate the actuality. That's why it comes to prophets and non-prophets, apostles and non-apostles. Because they all belong to Jesus Christ and have Him in them. And that produces something profound and violent. Because just as there is the Spirit in you, there is a Spirit in them. This is the clash of the two kingdoms. This is not the clash of any two kingdoms. This is the clash of the two kingdoms. And when these two spirits interact, it always results in intense persecution. Look in Matthew chapter 24 this time. Um, and you guys, if you've hung around Mount Zion for very long, you probably know this like the back of your hand. I hope that you do. It's sweet to be reminded. Matthew chapter 24, verse 9, when Jesus is being asked by His disciples, what will, what will the end of the age look like? What will be the sign of your coming? 
The first thing Jesus tells them, well, it's not all the stuff that you think it's going to be. It's not war and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines and natural disasters and all the kind of stuff that even though Jesus says this, every time one of these things happen, especially if it happens in the Middle East, you know, the, the, the Armageddon books start churning off the presses. You know, I'm surprised they're not out yet already. Somebody probably had one sitting in a drawer somewhere that they could just tweak a couple of dates and facts and crank that dude out after what happened in October and it's still happening. But the fact of the matter is, is Jesus says that's not it. And then he says what it does look like. He says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the gospel of the kingdom, this gospel of the kingdom, the one that Jesus is preaching in the Sermon on the Mount, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed, this gospel that says, good news, the king reigns, will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So there's just like a ton of theology in Matthew 24. And just in these few verses here from 9 to 14, we could spend months in the pulpit. only thing I want to focus on this morning is, is this. The thing that is pressing this increase in persecution is the increase of something called lawlessness. And it is the opposing spirit that is in the world that is opposite to the Spirit of Christ in us. And it doesn't bring the hope of glory like the Spirit of Christ does. It brings damnation. And so because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. It's going to result in all of these things. You're being handed over to be flogged and put to death and, and, and all of the things of tribulation that come. So you okay, well then, if, what is lawlessness? Do we, I mean, does Scripture tell us? Do we have a, a definition for what lawlessness is? And the short answer is yes, we do. Because it appears that this was a topic that the church in Thessalonica was struggling with. Remember we said earlier, we're going to come, it's very poignant that he wrote this to the Thessalonians. That he said, hey, it spread to you. And man, did it spread to them. This opposing spirit was there. That's why the persecution came. What is lawlessness? In short, lawlessness is rebellion. It comes in the form of exalting self above God. For God says that He is holy and like no other, and that He will receive the glory due His name, that He is set apart and different. Lawlessness says, no, you're not. I'll be exalted. I'll be justified. I'll become my own standard. You're not my standard. But lawlessness is more than that. It's more than just to put the Creator in the wrong so the creature can be in the right, to make yourself the standard instead of God being the standard. It also involves a spiritual partnership because it is a counterfeit of what is going on in the kingdom of God. It involves a spiritual partnership between fallen terrestrial beings, that being humans, and fallen celestial beings, what we would call demons, in rebellion against their Creator. And you have unchanging forces that interact over time. 
you always end up with predictable results. You have two forces, and the two forces are always the same. And you do a set of experiments over and over and over with all sorts of varying degrees and, and variables to consider, but the forces remain the same. The interaction is always predictable. Take two cars out on the highway and ram them together with a closing speed of 100 miles an hour. You will get a predictable result. Change the closing speed. The result will still stay predictable, though it may look a little more or less severe. In other words, what I'm saying is this, is the laws of physics tell us that two objects cannot, cannot coexist in the same space at the same time. You try to make that happen, and physics will resolve that equation with twisted steel, broken glass, and death. This is what happens. You run them together, predictable result. You always end up with two crushed, crashed, and mangled pieces of aluminum, steel, and plastic. It happens every time. We have whole sections of the automotive industry that are set aside specifically to deal and counteract those predictable results when that happens. Because you know why? Two have never bounced off each other like two balloons smacking together. Because when you have two of the same forces interacting over and over and over, you always get a predictable result. You know it intuitively. Which is why when you see a horrific car crash on the interstate, nobody goes, huh, I wonder if they just won the lottery. Everybody goes, hmm. You know it intuitively. And you have the spirit of lawlessness and the spirit of Jesus Christ interacting over the course of time. You will eventually come to an end in the ultimate expression of that result where it's as bad as it can be. Scripture speaks about it as the man of lawlessness or what we often call the Antichrist. And yet, repeatedly in greater or lesser degrees over the course of time, you will see it occur again and again and again and again until you get to the day of that ultimate expression and one is victorious and the other is annihilated. Lawlessness, I say all that to say this, we talk about the Antichrist and we talk about the man of lawlessness. Friends, let me tell you something. That should not be clinically separated from you. Because the spirit of lawlessness that will produce that is already at work and it already produces the predictable result. And that's not my theory. This is exactly what Paul tells the Thessalonians as they are struggling with the realities of slander and persecution that comes from the clash of these two spirits there in Thessalonica. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. I know it's a big chunk, but just let's let's just dive in here. We're almost done. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, same topic as we were talking about in Matthew 24. Lord, tell us what will be the sign of your coming and, and, and at the end of the age. And he says, okay, because lawlessness increases, the love of many will grow cold and they're going to kill you. They're going to persecute you. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. <laughs> don't you wonder, you're like, man, Paul, why are you so calm? If this is what we're talking about, why are you like, don't be quickly shaken or alarmed? We'll get to that next week. Don't be quickly shaken or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, 
who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. So here's your definition of lawlessness. This is rebellion, where you say, nope, I will not recognize that you're in the right, I'm in the right, I will exalt myself above anything else. So that, this has an eventuality, it's coming to a predictable conclusion, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. The ultimate expression of what lawlessness desires. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Isn't that interesting? Quick side note. We often, we often give excuse to, to things of eschatology and say stuff like, well, there's just some things that aren't for us to understand. Amen. Unless God writes them down and then they're there for us to understand. Right? Or we'll say so. Well, you know, you'll see young Christians get interested in this stuff and, and hey, listen, this is definitely one of those topics that has a lot of cereal bowl theology, lots of nuts and flakes hanging around in this part of the cabinet. You know what I mean? So you have to be careful and you find out real quick who those are based off how tight their exegesis is. But the reality is, is this. This is something that, the, that Paul was teaching the Thessalonians from the beginning. This is not some little side offshoot of Christianity. This is not some theological feeder creek that, that you know, the, the really hardcore can kind of explore up. This is what he was teaching them when he went there on his, the first missionary journey to them. Don't you remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things. And now you know what is restraining him so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. It was already working in Thessalonica in the first century. And we know that because the persecution between the clash of these two kingdoms was occurring there. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until, until he is out of the way. And then the lawless, one, the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of His mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of His coming. Now when you get the ultimate expression, somebody's going to win, somebody's going to be annihilated. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So it is not only by Satan but it is also by the kind of men that are perishing because they refuse to love the truth that would result in their salvation. When the light of Jesus Christ is shown upon them, they have chosen not to repent, but instead to justify themselves, put God in the wrong, and say, I'll replace you as the standard for what righteousness is. This is rebellion. This is sedition. This is lawlessness. You can't separate it from evangelism. Because just as the light of Christ provokes those who are His to come to Him, so it provokes them to justify themselves. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. This Spirit is already at work and it is producing the predictable results. It's already happening. It's happening 2,000 years ago. It's still happening today. It was happening 1,000 years before that when it was David that was being persecuted. It's been happening ever since the garden. Today, the clearest example that you can flip on the news and see is the way 
that the spirit of lawlessness in order to justify itself first begins with slander that then leads towards violence, particularly with the subject of Israel. I'm not here to be a, a, a fluffer for Israel today because as a state, they make plenty of mistakes. They've done plenty of evil things as have all men. But the promise of Abraham belongs to them. And so you see it unfolding. Slander that will eventually yield violent persecution and not being the ultimate expression will then cycle again back to slander based off what has previously occurred that will lead to violent persecution that will cycle to slander to violent persecution and over and over and over and over in the predictable result until we get the ultimate result when one is annihilated and the other one isn't. You know, the, the narrative that you hear. As Palestinians, they only want to govern themselves. Israel's an occupying force. But the reality is, is, in 2005, Israel unilaterally deconstructed all of their settlements in the Gaza Strip, pulled out, built a fence, said, leave us alone, have your own elections. The first thing they did in governing themselves was elect Hamas, whose charter calls for both the annihilation of the state of Israel and the eradication of every Jew from the planet. Now you can imagine how that's going to go. So what did they do? The world sent humanitarian aid by the billions. And we all knew they were doing it, but now they've openly confessed. We used all of that to leverage our position. Man, we're building rockets. And that's all they did. They shot rockets on a continual basis. kept running their mouth in slander. Look how bad the Jews are to us. Look how bad the Jews are to us. Look how bad the Jews are to us. Until... Last month, it ended with atrocities like cutting the head off of infants. Now the world's going to want to talk about a moral equivalency there, but there is no moral equivalency. There's no moral equivalency. Guess what? You think, man, the cycle's come to its head. No, the cycle's just ramping up. It's just ramping up. This will result, the actions that have been taken will result in future slander. Now here's what's amazing to me, and this is how strong the spirit of lawlessness that is already at work is. You can have video that were shot, not by outsiders, but on body cams of the people committing the persecution. You can have video that was shot by them that they posted going, woo-hoo, look what we've done. Aren't we awesome? And you would think that that would cause any rational human being at that point to sour and turn and distance themselves and go, man, you people need to be locked away forever. Whoever has, and by you people, I mean those that are committing and promoting these specific acts. Those people need to be locked away forever. They have no place in polite society. But that is not what has happened. Instead, you've seen an increase in the rhetoric. You know, this, this week, they got the first major hostage swap. And they swapped 150 convicted terrorists for 50 predominantly small children and elderly. 
And you look at that and you go, man, that's a, that's a rough... You know, I look at that and the first thing I think is, man, that... Yeah, why would you give them 150? And, and the short answer is, is because they felt like that's the way they could get back 50 of their little kids and their old people. And sometimes you take a bad deal instead of no deal at all. And buddy, if it was my kid, or if it was my mama, I'd say give them a thousand if they want them. Send them a sod after them later. Get my kid back. Get my grandma back. You know the way that's being spun? They say it's proof of Israeli apartheid and intentional genocide. It's the underpinning for their genocide of the Palestinians because being willing to trade them three to one, it indicates that the Jews believe that a Jewish life is three times more valuable than a Palestinian life. You talk about false slander. I couldn't have set up all night with four or five of the boys and ever been able to come up with that spin. That's insane. It's not over. It's starting. You got people running out in the middle of Macy's Day, Thanksgiving Day Macy's Parade, gluing their hands to the sidewalk, yelling about uh, Israeli genocide, calling them Nazis. Apparently, we don't teach history anymore. Like, do you understand? Hang on, Nazi, Jewish Day, <laughs> big does not equal sign. You look at that and you go, yeah. And, and look, what it will do is it will breed. There will, be, there will be a group that in, in the intention to justify themselves will believe that. And, and having painted them as evil, that will justify them that they can be treated as though they're evil. Apparently all the way up to the point of cutting heads off of infants. Now, like I said, you know, I'm not the guy that wears the crossed Israel-American flag on his lapel. It's not about the politics. It's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the difference between good and evil. And say, so, well, yeah, but you know, that's Jewish persecution. That's not Christian persecution. Okay, very quickly here. It starts with the Jews, and then the saints are next. Because when you have two forces that do not change interacting over the course of time, you always get a predictable result. And this is the way that it works every single time. It's the way it worked in Nazi Germany in the 1930s and 40s. The only thing that kept the persecution of Christians there from being as bad as what the Holocaust on the Jews was is that the war was over before they could get around to it. It happened there. It'll happen in the final solution at the end as well. Look at Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 17. Revelation 12, this is, this is at the halfway point of the tribulation where, where the Antichrist is about to receive the mortal wound and at that point in time cease being just a human and basically become a human suit that Satan himself is wearing. Necromancy is a very old, old form of, of, of demonism. It goes all the way back to the law. 
And so now in verse 7 it says, Now war arose in heaven and Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back and he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. He knows his time is short. And he's angry about it. And so when the dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman, that being Israel, was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, times, and half a time. We do not understand how, but somehow in this day when Satan is thrown down from heaven and he's very angry because he knows his time is short and if you're going to be able to get it done and take the inheritance from the Son, you've got three and a half years left to do it. So it is time to get down to dirty business. And the first thing he does is pursue the woman. And somehow in a way that is not told to us in Scripture, the Lord miraculously preserves them. He miraculously preserves them. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. And the dragon became furious with the woman and then he does this. And he went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. When Satan is cast down from heaven and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the first thing he does is try to destroy the Jews. When he cannot do that, then, as his second choice, he turns instead upon the church, upon the saints, upon the followers of Jesus Christ that are also noted as being the other offspring of the woman, the other offspring of Israel. It always starts with the Jews, but it will come to the Christians next. And you have to ask yourself, why go after the Christians second instead of first? You know, if you think about this from a Western mindset and Christianity kind of here, you know, on the buckle of the Bible belt today in Arkansas, wouldn't you think that if you were a general in a kingdom and were planning a war, that in this scenario, what you would do, the first people that you would persecute would be the saints. The first people that you would try to stop, the first people that you would try to go after, the first people that you would try to shut down in silence would be the saints. I mean, after all, theirs is the kingdom right now. There's a promise coming to Israel, but that day's not yet. Right now you only have a remnant, according to the Apostle Paul in Romans, of Israel that is being saved. And so, while they're really not that big of an issue at the moment, why don't you just leave them alone? You've got some time there. Go over here and deal with these saints that belong to the kingdom now. That makes sense. If you're thinking from a tactical mindset. 
But it doesn't make sense if you're thinking from a strategic one. When you're thinking from a strategic sense, you think differently. If you're wanting to conquer the United States, you don't deal with whatever particular band of special forces that is the biggest individual threat in front of you right now. That's how you win a battle. It's not how you win a war. If you want to win a war, what you do is you choke the kingdom. You destroy from which its supply comes. You whack the port of New Orleans. You whack the port of Houston. L.A., San Francisco, Seattle, New York, Boston. You shut those down and you don't have to worry about the special forces troops over here. They'll starve to death in a couple of months. Which is exactly what he's doing. In Romans chapter 11. In Romans 11 and verse 13. Speaking about this very thing and the interaction between the Jews and the Gentiles in the kingdom of God that brings about the consummation of the age. That's the topic in Romans 11. This isn't some general thing about Jews and Gentiles. This is Jews and Gentiles interacting under persecution that brings about the consummation of the age. In verse 13, Paul says this, Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. Magnify my ministry. And do it in order to somehow make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Yeah, that's what we call the resurrection. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. If the root is holy, so are the branches. And he uses this analogy. This is the way we relate in the kingdom. But if some of the branches were broken off, that you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root who supports you. That, my friends, is a statement of such great profoundness that it will cause Satan, when pushed into the corner, to choose to go after the Jew before he goes after the Christian. Because the Spirit in us, the Spirit of Christ in us, is the same Spirit that was in the prophets. It's the same Spirit that was in Moses. It's the same Spirit that was in David. It's why they were being persecuted. It's why we will be persecuted. The promise of the Gospel didn't come through Gentiles. The promise of the Gospel came through Abraham. Which is why Jesus says, you speak of what you don't understand, for salvation is from the Jews. It was the Gospel that was first spoken to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. I mean, this is what Paul tells us in Galatians. He straight up says, it was the Gospel spoken to Abraham when he said, in you all the nations will be blessed. You talk about a strategic move. We here in America, we may have all sorts of supply, man. We may have the Port of New Orleans. We may have San Diego. We may have them in Virginia. We, we may have ports all over the place. There is one supply in the kingdom of heaven. One. That supply is Jesus Christ and the nourishment that comes from the root 
comes through the promise of Abraham. And if he can chop that off, he doesn't have to worry about killing every single branch that's been grafted in. You can destroy the line of promise. You've killed them all. And you've killed them all eternally. God says no. Beauty of being sovereign in a repetitive conflict. He says no. He said no every time. When Trajan tried to wipe him out, he said no. When Sennacherib tried to wipe him out 700 years before, he said no. When Nebuchadnezzar was going to annihilate them, he said no. When the Third Reich was going to do it, he said no. He'll say no again today. And every time he says no, you mark my words. It's not my words, it's Scripture. Every time he says no, the spirit of lawlessness will turn against the church. It's come. It's already started. The spirit of lawlessness is at work. Anybody follow the case of Mark Hawk? You know what Mark's guilty of? Mark's guilty of, he's a Catholic, he's guilty of standing out in front of an abortion clinic, praying the rosary, and offering to give any sidewalk counseling to anyone that would help him, that, that, that would allow him. I'm sure he is an incredible irritation to the people that work there. So they had escorts that come and take the women in to, to be spoken to about having an abortion that's designed to keep guys like this from praying for them and whatnot. And you can argue about the effectiveness of that kind of ministry. And I think there's definitely some, some ground to make an argument one way or the other. Um, but um, what's not in question is, is the right to do that. And so one day with his 12-year-old son with him, one of these escorts was screaming profanities inches from this child's nose in his face and doing what a father would have a tendency to do, Mark shoved him. And look, let's just be honest about it. Most of our men in here, he'd probably be lucky if that's all he got was shoved. I mean, there's video of it. It's by, I mean, the guy's in this kid's face. just horrible. And he shoved him. And that was it. He wasn't injured. He didn't have to go to the hospital. Or, you know, he shoved him. In September, the DOJ sick the FBI on him and they showed up at his house with a tactical team with MP5 submachine guns at the breaking of dawn in the morning. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think that's a proportionate response? It's coming. We have had the... I'm sorry, I'm way over time. I'm done. We've had the, the, the blessing and the luxury in this country of living in a bubble. But that is not the rule of Christian history. It is the exception. There's a couple of small other bubbles that you can look at over the centuries, but there are very few, and they're all pretty short-lived. And when he can't get what he wants out of Israel, the spirit of lawlessness will turn to us. And you know what Jesus says about that? Rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad. You go, man, how can I be how can I rejoice and be glad? You can rejoice and be glad because it is all the result 
of the Spirit of Christ in you, which is, what Scripture says, the hope of glory. And that will be our focus for this week. For this week, I'll just say this. Listen, if a lot of Christ is shining into your life, whether it be from somebody speaking with you or reading the Scripture, or even perhaps from hearing a, a big old long sermon like this one, let me just say this. Man, you've got two choices. You can, you can repent and be saved, or you can justify yourself and walk in lawlessness. Please repent. Please repent. Man, you come to Christ right now. You, you, don't need to, you, know, you don't need to say a fancy prayer. You don't need me to tell you to bow your head. You come to Christ right where you're at. Just repent.